Well, good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. I did my best in the parking lot to shake every single hand, but there's just too many of you in this second service. If we haven't met, my name's Bruce. I am part of the Garner Four. And on behalf of our family and this church family that we call Crosspoint, I want to welcome you to this Easter celebration. This is what we do every weekend. It's what Christians have always done. As soon as the first believers in Christ were convinced that He was actually back from the dead, just as promised, they began then to meet on Sunday. They moved their custom of meeting on the Sabbath as observant Jews to Sunday to remember every week the resurrection. And this morning, I'd like to tell you God's story. But I'd like to start with a question that maybe you're asking yourself these days. What is wrong with the world? You ever ask yourself that? People who are paying attention do just about every day, I think. Did you know they've actually done studies? If you watch the local news, you'll have more mental health problems than if you don't. <laughs> Psychological reality. You get accurate reporting of what's happening right around you, and you'll be more depressed, you'll be more angry, you'll be more anxious, you'll have mental problems because of being aware of what's going on in your immediate surroundings. It's true. The reason for that is I've heard serious news people say this, heard a professor of communication who had worked in journalism his entire life say that the newsroom credo is simple. If it bleeds, it leads. If there's death, if there's blood, if there's human suffering, if there's tear-stained faces that we can bring to the world, along with everything else we'll tell them, we'll show them suffering first. And now in a connected world, we are keenly aware of human problems and suffering and injustice and death like we never have been. And you don't have to wait to see it splashed across your screens. It's much closer than that. The fact that there is something desperately wrong with the world and desperately wrong with every human heart is as close as our own thoughtful reflection on our own lives. You dig just a little bit into every single family, including ours, and you won't have to go very far before you find disappointment and hurt and unmet expectations and middle-aged people who had a very different view of what their life would be like compared to what it actually is now. Nervous young people, bitter and disappointed seniors. At every age, in every season, in every family, in every home, there is something wrong with the world. And the great minds of humanity, from the time people could put their thoughts into writing, have wrestled with this question. We all feel it, some days more than others, but we all feel that there is something wrong out there, and worse, there's something wrong in here. And many years ago, reportedly, the Times of London asked this question publicly and invited leading thinkers of the day to write essays in reply to the editor of the Times addressing and answering this question from the point of view of intellectuals. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a brilliant Englishman who was a poet and a novelist and a philosopher, he wrote the simplest reply of all. Reportedly, G.K. Chesterton wrote back to the Times of London and said simply this, 
Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What did Chesterton mean? What was he talking about? Why, when asked, why was a brilliant man, when asked what was wrong with the world, why did he say that it was his fault, his trouble? Well, that brings me to this book. I'm holding a copy of the Bible. It's an intimidating book for most people, for good reason. It's big. 1,189 chapters written in three different languages, written across about 1,400 years of time. That means if the Bible began to be written today, it wouldn't be completed until about 3,400, a very long time from now. And yet, it's one cohesive story. That's one of the reasons I believe it is the very Word of God. You couldn't put 40 people together to write a book over 1,400 years, very few of them ever even having met each other across all of that time in all those different cultures and life situations and in three different languages to write a single story. It wouldn't make any sense, but God's Word does. And maybe you've tried to read it. Maybe you were one of those who picked it up and decided to read it like you would any other book, and you started with the first few words and decided to read all the way across it. Anybody ever tried that? Let me tell you what it's about. It is a long, accurate, painful history of human failure. If you were to bring the events that the Bible accurately records of human experience, if you were to put them into film, there is no possible way to make it G-rated if you told the whole story. You'd have to do cunts to cutaways. You'd have to leave many things out because it is dark and awful. And the reason for that is it tells you page after page, over two-thirds of it, tells you of great men and women Men, God, uh, men that God loved, men that God chose and made promises to, and every single one of them show what's wrong with the world, and it's them. They're all flawed. They're all broken. Let me tell you the story of a few of them. These are men who are so foundational to human history and civilization that we still give our sons their names. You meet Abraham on barely the 12th chapter of Scripture. God spoke to him in modern-day Iraq and made him a marvelous promise that from his descendants, one would come who would bless and save the whole world. If you read the whole story, you learn eventually that that's Jesus. But Abraham was made an amazing promise and shown incredible favor by God. Eventually, his faith grew, and he trusted God so much that he was called in Scripture a friend of God. He was called the father of the faith. He's an example to everyone since. To this day, he's an example to me of someone who simply takes God at his word and believes him. But if you read Abraham's life, you read of him traveling in a foreign land and plotting with his wife to tell a foreign king, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And the king took her home to be his wife. You understand what I'm telling you? The father of the faith, a man eventually called a friend of God, exposed his wife to another man's sexual advances to further his own cause. 
Just put that in real terms. If you knew somebody who was doing that, who had a beautiful, desirable wife, and you knew this, the man you know, the man who lives next door was continually telling people, no, 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 that's not my wife. That's my sister. She's available. You wouldn't want to be friends with someone like that. He exposed her. He put her at risk. That's Abraham. Later, you meet Moses. Once the nation of Israel, in accordance to God's promise to Abraham, is fulfilled, the nation of Israel rises, and Moses gives us one of the most famous set of moral rules in human history. He gives us the famous Ten Commandments. He leads the nation of Israel through the Exodus, and in his old age, with his strength undiminished, they finally wear him out, and in a terrible moment, a man who is called the humblest, the meekest, the most self-controlled man who ever lived finally loses his temper, disrespects God in front of all of God's people. And God says to him, Moses, you'll die on the wrong side of the river. You'll only look at the promised land. You'll never touch it. And that's Moses. Then comes the greatest king of Israel, David. A man so legendary, so admirable, that I, that I bet there's at least a dozen men who will attend church here across this weekend who bear his name. He's a man's man. His historical life is so spectacular that it inspired the artistic imagination of Michelangelo to sculpt a man that every guy pretty much would like to look like. David had it all. He was a poet and a warrior king. He was accomplished in battle. He legendarily stood against a giant alone and led, God, led God's people to victory. He also was called a man after God's own heart and wrote some of the Psalms. Some of the words we sang today find their roots and their origin in David's thinking as God inspired him to sing praises to God. Perhaps at a funeral you heard these comforting words, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Maybe on a hard day you've comforted yourself with this thought from the 23rd Psalm. Yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. That's David you're quoting. Nobody like him. But like many successful men in his old age, he grew complacent and self-satisfied. And one day he made a terrible mistake and sent his armies into the field while he stayed home. And he took a stroll at the top of his palace and looked down and saw a beautiful woman bathing. He became, in that moment, voyeuristic. Rather than go back inside, out of respect for his decency, he continued to look at the woman, and even though he knew she was the wife of one of his soldiers, who today we would call a part of his special forces, he was inflamed by lust. A man after God's own heart desired a woman that did not belong with him, and he sent for her and seduced her, and under color of authority slept with her and got her pregnant. She sent word that she was pregnant. And the king tried to cover his shame and what would eventually be exposed as his guilt because her husband was off fighting the king's wars by trying to lure the man home. And more than once, the second time getting him drunk, he tried to send him home to sleep with his wife and cover the sin. 
David's soldier was more honorable than he was. He said, my men are in the field. I won't go home and be comforted by my wife while the men of Israel are fighting and dying. And he refused to go in. He slept outside. And David felt trapped. He wrote orders that he delivered to Uriah himself, trusting that this honorable soldier would not open them because they were directed to David's general. And what they said was, put him in the hottest part of the fighting, and when it's really bad, the rest of you fall back and leave him alone. It was murder. A man of war knew exactly what he was doing. And when the word came back that one of his bravest, most loyal men had been killed in battle, David cynically said, well, the sword kills one and it kills another. That's war. A man after God's own heart turned out to be in his old age when he took his sight off God, turned out to be first an adulterer, then a murderer. And David had a notable son named Solomon. Solomon is known for a few different things. Some of you know, what is Solomon most notable for? He's wisdom. And along with his wisdom, he had what else? He had legendary, God-inspired wisdom. His wisdom is written primarily in the book of Proverbs. It means so much, it is so timeless, it is so wise and so safe that our family for years has had the habit of continually reading Proverbs and discussing it to keep ourselves and particularly our young sons from the kind of harm that will befall them if they act foolish. But Solomon, Solomon grew idolatrous. He fell in love with many women, literally hundreds and hundreds of women. His heart drifted from God so that when Solomon was gone, immediately afterward, his wayward son made cruel decisions that split the nation of Israel in two. There was a civil war from which Israel never recovered. And if you've ever heard the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel, know this, they were lost because of Solomon's foolishness first that he bequeathed to his son. Every single one of these heroes, men and women, all across these chapters, when you read their lives, you find out that the Bible tells you the truth about the human condition, and every single one of them is fatally flawed. No one, not the friend of God, not the man after God's own heart, not the wisest and wealthiest man to ever live in the ancient world or at any other time, ever, any one of them was perfect. And Solomon grew so disenchanted that he gave us another book named Ecclesiastes that speaks with accurate, depressing realism of what the human condition is like. This is the beginning of his book, Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon wrote. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Let's be real for a second. You ever ask yourself that question? You ever pour your heart into something and succeed? And when the glow of success is off and the applause dies down and everyone's taken your picture and happily said your name, have you ever walked away from, this is the cruelest of all, from success and asked yourself, what's this all really about? Is this all there is? 
Solomon had everything. That's the story of Ecclesiastes. He deliberately experiments and enjoys every single good thing under the sun. And he tells you his diagnosis, the end of his experiment, in the first words of the book, it's all futile. For all of the wisdom, for all of the wealth, for all the effort, the success, and the pleasure, what does it all mean? What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? It's flat out depressing, I tell you. It's telling you the truth of the human condition. So, what is wrong with the world? Solomon himself gives you the answer in Ecclesiastes 7.20. And this is so obvious and true that even if you didn't know it's in the Bible, you'll immediately know it's true and correct. Solomon wrote by the seventh chapter, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Let me just ask you, do you find that to be true? You ever met a perfect human being on this earth? No. There is no one on earth, not one, no matter how admirable, no matter how honorable, no matter how religious, no matter how moral, there's none among us who is righteous. In other words, no one who always does what is right and never sins. Not one. That's why you locked your door before you came to church here this morning. That's why you watch your children. That's why you buy insurance. You buy insurance to guard against the natural evil in the world that takes people apparently with no rhyme or reason and the personal evil in the world of people who would take advantage of you. That's why you have contracts instead of happy handshakes. Every single person lives their life guarding against this sober reality that there is no one on earth, not one single person who can always be counted on to do what is right. No, no one in life who always lives in a way that can be said that he or she never sins. Not one person. The most self-righteous man in the world came to understand that. You may know his name. His name was Paul. He became a believer in Jesus after a spectacular career in religion and moral behavior. If you would have known Paul before Paul met Jesus, you would have said what everyone said about him, that he was upright, that he had a clear conscience, that he did his best every single day of his life. And he was so indignant by the message I'm giving you this morning that Jesus died and rose again that he thought it was all a lie until he met Jesus. And it turned his life completely around. Paul understood for the first time in his life what everybody needs to understand, that no amount of good behavior will ever be good enough for God. And here's what Paul wrote a thousand years after Solomon to tell you essentially the same thing. Paul wrote some early Christians in the city of Rome, hence the name Romans, and he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person. The word sin, which has almost become a joke in our culture, literally means in the original language that Paul wrote in, it means to miss the mark. It means to come up short. That's what Paul's telling you. Every single person on earth misses the mark, misses God's standard, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And nobody walks around with a conscious knowledge of God's standard and how Short, we are falling of it for one simple reason. We don't compare ourselves with God, we compare ourselves with one another. And if I can choose the group 
I can always come out pretty good. Just let me choose the standard. That's just basic human behavior. And when it comes to spiritual matters, listen, it's deadly. Here's one example of that. It's my favorite statistic. Years ago, a friend of mine who is a bit of a geek and loves this sort of thing, as as I do, quoted a scientifically conducted study where they asked middle-aged men this question. If you could have avoided injury and you would have had adequate coaching, could you have been a professional athlete in your best high school sport? I want you to be clear on the question. If you wouldn't have blown out your left knee in an athletic injury that the world still laments, and if you would not have been subjected to pinheaded coaches who did not have the talent to draw out your full potential, Could you have been a professional in your best high school sport? You know what the results are? Almost 70% of American men said, yes, I could have been a pro. (laughs) Now, every time I tell that stat, everybody laughs, but you're out there somewhere. 67% is 67%. Now, you know all that proves? It proves that 67% or so of American men have never seen the top level. They don't know that God makes professional athletes out of different genetic material than all the rest of us. (laughs) It's just different. They live in delusion. And the older they they get, the better they were. Because they're not comparing themselves by the right standard. I'm not trying to be mean, and I'm certainly not putting myself above anyone. I'm trying to be crystal clear on the standard. The standard for moral behavior is God Himself. It's His holiness. It's His righteousness. Not your neighbors, not your friends, not even the person you used to be. That's why this big, long book is so depressing for so very many chapters. That's why you meet man after man and woman after woman, every single one of them flawed, every single one of them falling short. And then, almost to the end of the book, as God's story continues to unfold, Jesus is sent among us as was promised to Abraham so many times, so many years ago. And if you look carefully, you can find over four dozen major prophecies that God gave through His prophets hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He wanted to put it in writing so that any sincere spiritual seeker could search it out and make sure. So 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah spoke of His virgin birth. He also narrated the circumstances of in death and the specifics of his burial, that Jesus, though poor, would be buried among wealthy people. Daniel spoke of the time of his birth. Micah said that the little town of Bethlehem, which is of no particular importance, would be the place where Jesus was born. The man who turned out to be not only a man after God's own heart, but a man capable of adultery and murder. David wrote in many of the Psalms speaking accurately of the life of Jesus, and most impressively, David detailed exactly in physical terms his crucifixion, even though crucifixion had not been invented during, Je- during David's day. 
Zechariah was so specific that he named the price 600 years before Jesus was alive that Judas would take in payment to betray the one he called teacher. It's all in writing. It's all in the Bible. You can take it home with you, and I can show you page after page of specific writings written anywhere from 1,000 to 600 years before Jesus was born. His whole life was written out and promised before He came, and He stood among men as the only exception to Solomon's rule. Every word He ever spoke was loving and truthful. Even when He was blunt, it was only to wake people up to their spiritual reality. He stands alone in human history as an example of love because He was God on earth, loving His creation as no one ever has or ever will in His place. And we're here today because of what happened to Jesus. After all that, the Creator, the Righteous One, was executed. And all the things that Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon had done that were wicked and foolish pale in comparison to the reality that one day the men and women he made called out for his death. Why? Paul, that self-righteous Pharisee, the one he thought he could make it on his own, took a single verse to explain it. And it's that verse that I'd like to explain to you now before we're done. Paul wrote the Romans after telling them that everyone misses the mark and everyone falls short of God's standard, Paul explained the remedy. He explained both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Here it is. It says, He, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins. In other words, the the death of Jesus was not random. It was deliberate. It was sent here by His Father, and He chose the cross tenaciously, so clearly, so purposely that He told His disciples for months before His death exactly what was going to happen, and they were unable to change His mind. Why? Because He was being handed over to die because of our sins. And you're ready to have peace with God, and you're ready to have eternal life when you can see what Chesterton saw. Chesterton's two-word essay was truthful and honest and humble because when he surveyed the problems of the world, he said, the problem is right here. It starts with me. Jesus was being handed over to die because of our sins, and when you can make it my sins and not the sins of everybody else, then you're ready to be at peace with God. But see, you, you run a real danger. I know this after more than 20 years of telling people this simple message. People hear of their need. People hear of their sins. They compare themselves to God, and to comfort themselves, they look at somebody else, and they say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And you're right. And it will also do you no good. See, if the world's greatest athlete and I both tried to jump across the Grand Canyon, we'd both die. It wouldn't be any comfort to him that at least he got 30 feet farther from the cliff than I did. You won't answer with anybody else, and you won't answer for anybody else when God brings you to your day. I know that's true because Jesus said so. Let me explain to you a single verse that probably sobers me up 
And if I'm being, if I'm taking Jesus seriously, humbles me faster than anything he ever said. It's found in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is speaking before he went to the cross. He's showing the standard of judgment. He's warning people not to compare themselves with one another, but to compare themselves with their creator and their judge, the only one that they'll ever answer to because he's the one who gave them life. Jesus said this, I tell you on the day of judgment, and Jesus takes it as a given that there will be a day of judgment, there will be a day when you will answer for yourself. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Do you know how many careless words I've spoken in my lifetime? The wisdom of Proverbs helps me again. Solomon wrote, where there are many words, sin is not absent. You keep talking, you'll start sinning. If every word I've ever spoken were held to account by God, I'd be in deep trouble. Many, many times I've failed to be wise, I've failed to be truthful, I've failed to be loving, I've failed to be kind and encouraging. I'm quick with wit and I'm quick with sarcasm. I'm quick to hurt and I'm quick to stick up for myself. Jesus has something to say to me and to you. Even if you're not as big a talker as I am, listen what Jesus said. I tell you, all of you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Here's the standard, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Every word ever spoken, God will examine and your words will either speak for you or against you. And there's not one person I've ever met who could say, I'm as good as Jesus when I speak. I'm perfect. Nothing to be sorry for. Not one single person ever. And this is just one example. He knows all the rest of it as well. He hears the words I speak, and what's worse, he sees the motives of my heart and yours. It's all laid open before him. Every single thing about our hearts is open before the sight of the God who made us. That's why Paul says he was handed over to die because of our sins. In other words, what Jesus is offering is an exchange. This is the part about the gospel message that you have to understand before we conclude this service. Many people take Christianity as a moral self-improvement program. And a lot of people come to church on days like this hoping that they will hear something to inspire them to do better and be better. Can I tell you something? It's a lost cause. Your only way out is to trade lives with Jesus, to take His death for your sins. He was handed over to die because of our sins. He wanted to trade with you. He wanted to trade His death for your life. He wanted to trade your unrighteousness for His righteousness, your sin for His perfection. That's the Christian message. That's why the Bible is such a long story of failure. There's no other way for people apart from God to be saved except to trade lives with His Son, Jesus Christ. A few days ago, the whole nation was convulsed, probably because we could all identify with the story. A man paid for a plane ticket, was asked to leave, things got heated, and before it was over, law enforcement dragged him, bloody and screaming, down the center aisle of the plane.
People screamed in protest. People filmed it. People swore. People abused verbally the people who were doing it. But you know what didn't happen? Not one single person on that airplane said, Stop! Leave him alone. Take me instead. No one offered to be his substitute. Jesus is offering to be yours. He was handed over to die because of our sins, because of your sins, because of mine. And here's the resurrection story. He was raised to life to make us right with God. The resurrection of Jesus proves incontrovertibly for 40 days he walked among people to show beyond a shadow of reasonable doubt that it had actually happened, that the exchange was sufficient, that he had traded places with you, and that his life, his death, and his resurrection would be enough to cover you. I'll let him have the last word. Here's how Jesus explained it. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Listen to Jesus because it's an invitation. And here's where I close and put you at a crossroads. I'm not doing this to put you on the spot. I'm not trying to do this to make you a member of this church, to make you a religious person, to make you promise to do better. I'm doing this specifically so that you will hear the words of Jesus, the only person who has ever offered to trade lives with you, whose life will be sufficient to save you from that day of reckoning, that day of judgment. The one who wants to trade the dark secrets of your heart for the purity of his own. Jesus said to you, I am the resurrection and the life. That sentence doesn't even make sense on the lips of anyone else. Anyone else that said that would be under immediate medical supervision. We'd be so concerned if anyone aside from Jesus of Nazareth said, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's the offer. Here's the invitation. I'm not a salesman on commission. I'm a messenger. I'm telling you a report. I'm bringing you a report that was faithfully written down so that you could examine it for yourself and makes the difference in people's lives today. The one who believes in me, Jesus said, even if he dies, will live. His resurrection removed the last enemy and the final sting, which is death. So that the worst thing that could ever happen to you on this earth is used by God in that moment to transfer you into what He planned and wanted for you all along, which is eternal, beautiful life. And forgiveness is just the beginning of it. When you trust Jesus and trade lives with Him, your debt is paid, your sin is canceled, but that's just the beginning of it because He's more than forgiveness. He actually is life. And you start following Him as best you can and because He loves you. And not because you're good, but because He's good. Not because you're wise, but because He's wise. Not because you're humble, but because He's humble. Your life begins to change from the inside out. And that's exactly what's happening in this congregation. I can introduce you to people who met Jesus just a few weeks ago and personally trusted Him. They are noticeably, visibly, practically different from the way they were just a few weeks ago. I can introduce you to others who look much more like Jesus because they've been walking with Him and trusting Him and having Him as their life for many, many years. If you've ever met a genuine Christian, I'm not talking about the hypocrites who claim Christ to excuse their terrible behavior. 
I'm talking to you about a genuine Christian. If you've ever met one, you know exactly what I mean. They are people who know they are what's wrong with the world, but they are saved by His amazing exchange where He is willing to trade His life for theirs. So that's my invitation to you, that you would listen to Jesus saying to you, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live, and you'll make that for yourself. And you'll say to him, Jesus, I believe you. I know you as a historical figure. I've heard your name all my life, but today I'm believing you. I'm trusting you. The question before you is simply this. Not whether you'll appreciate this sermon, but whether you will trust Him. That's the life-saving difference. He will rescue you. That's why we call Him a Savior. I'd like to give you an opportunity to trust Him right now. How do you do that? Well, He's an actual living person. He's not physically present, but He is alive. He is real. And maybe He's been speaking to you for years, and you've been making the terrible mistake that I made of putting Him off. Maybe you're like me. I was just a kid, but I was a very proud kid. And I continually compared myself with others and told my parents, I have no need of Jesus. I don't need to humble myself that way and trust Him because I'm a pretty good kid. Maybe today, by God's grace, you'll lay that pride down. Stop putting Him off and say to Jesus simply in prayer, Jesus, I believe. I trust You. Trade lives with me. Save me, and He will. He's done it for untold millions. He is willing, waiting, and eager to do it for you today. If only you will take Him at His word and trust Him. Could I invite you now to pray with, pray with me? If I could just invite you very practically to close your eyes. That doesn't make the prayer any better. It just gives you a moment to focus. You don't answer to me. You won't stand with anyone else on your day of judgment. It will be between you and God. And the life-saving difference is whether you have trusted His gift, His Son, to die for your sins and give you eternal life, make you right with God, beginning with forgiveness and continuing to give you His life. If you will humbly acknowledge your need of that, could I invite you to pray right now? You don't need the right words. You just need personal trust in Him. It might sound something like this. Jesus, I understand. I get it. I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. My words speak against me. If you were to judge me on the things I've said, on the things I've done, on the things I've thought, I understand. I am very very short of your standard. I have fallen short of your glory. I confess that. I tell you today that I'm sorry, and I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, please trade lives with me. Take my sin and give me your righteousness. Thank you for your death. Give me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.